Hello, everybody. This is Michelle Hayward with KC Atha again this week. We're back to talk more about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, today, we're specifically going to talk about Ben and Jerry's statement they made um, in response to the murder of George Floyd and why it is epic, why it is so important to look at it um, for when you're fighting or fighting racism and creating an anti So back. yes, I'm back. My internet is not letting me be great this week, this <laughs> month. So we are going to get started. So Crystal, um, just in case I fall out again, um, let's just start with the title, right? And I'll, I'll do a screen share and we'll see how this goes as well. <laughs> it's all an experiment. Um, it is, it is, it's live stream. Been doing this long enough to know. So we must dismantle white supremacy. When you hear this, what comes, when you read it, what was your first reaction? Saying it. <laughs> just saying it like it is. I think it's just plain talk. I, I agree. They did not um, sugarcoat it. Mm -hmm. They were straight to the point. It's, it's truly a call to action. It is telling you the work that needs to be done and to where you're going to implement that or that work is going to impact. So I love that it was straight to the point. And then after that, they said silence is not an option. So that meant you have to say something that is going to be impactful, that is going to move the, the call to action they have, which is dismantle white supremacy. So I, I love what how they started it um, just with the actual title of of their um i don't even know what i just call their, their action plan i actually call it their action plan because it is very very actionable so let's get into the introduction part of of their action plan um, i'll let you get started here okay so i want to say i love the way they use we must dismantle white supremacy because and then they start the first paragraph as all of us at Ben and Jerry's. So I think it's really important to say that we is important instead of saying white supremacy must be dismantled. That's a, you're sort of saying the same thing, but you're not saying we, it's not saying who is going to do it. Um, so I really like that. And all of us at Ben and Jerry's says, Hey, this is what we at Ben and Jerry's stand for. So even folks, I mean, I don't know how big Ben and Jerry's is, to be honest, how many um, employees or staff they have or who they work with, et cetera. But anyone that is in the sphere of influence of Ben and Jerry's is now understanding because of all of us at Ben and Jerry's. So everyone who interacts with Ben and Jerry's knows where they stand. They're not just saying, oh, it's a terrible thing that happened. They're saying, this is where we stand. And then that, when I teach bystander intervention, I think it's really important when we respond to harassment or harm being done, 
we say where we stand. That is not okay. We don't do that in our workplace. So that's one of the responses that I try to um, share with folks as a strategy that can be done because it names what is not allowed. Um, and what we do strive for is to dismantle white supremacy. So we're saying what we don't do, and then we're saying what we are doing, which is we are dismantling this. So I'm really into words, I'm really into language and how powerful language can be. Um, so that's why I'm breaking it down so like precisely, as well as saying we're outraged. They're naming murder. They're, I'm looking at my notes here. <laughs> um, they're naming black with a capital B. They're naming police officers. They're um, not just vaguely saying a system. Um, and then of course they're talking about in the next paragraph that George Floyd was a son, a brother, a father, a friend. Why are they doing that? Because our society and our police officers are obviously seeing us, the darker skin that we have as less human, maybe less yeah. of a son, less of a brother, less of a father, less of a friend. So I think that's whether they intentionally wrote those things, I don't know, but that's what struck me. That's what I thought like, yeah, we're human. And the last sentence, uh, the last three words, his own future. So his future was robbed from him. What triggered me was thinking like, oh, when the Kavanaugh thing came up, it was like, oh, but should his whole future be ruined because of this? It's like, well, you know, you're ruining black futures all the time and we don't question it. We're not outraged. We're not just assuming that George Floyd's future was robbed. We're just talking about, well, why did this happen and, and devil's advocate. So these just really popped out to me just right away. I knew what I was reading was like, they're taking action, they see clearly, and they're working to understand how to dismantle white supremacy. I, I absolutely agree with you when you said they de dehumanize too often when you hear reports, and we, we do this in a black community, or my, at least my friends and family do, we literally listen to how the news reports things when it's a white person and a black person. And oftentimes it is the, the black person is dehumanized. They find anything they can negatively in social media to post about the person. And early on, there were so many young men coming forward, like before they come out with these negative reports, before they tell you all these lies about him, let me tell you who George really was mm -hmm. because they knew it was gonna come. They We know what to expect. And they too often dehumanize us. So the first thing I read as like, my God, you literally made him a person before or after knowing how the media portrays us. So it was highly important that an ally that that's obviously been in Jerry's as an organization, as well as two, two white men have done, they understand how um, white supremacy works, how systemic racism works, as it directly relates to black people and dehumanizing us publicly, even and especially when we have been murdered by police officers. So I thought it was a very strong stance and a very strong opening for them to continue through their action plan. Like this is who we're talking about. This was who was murdered. And it really changes the narrative of how to move forward that you're not talking about a cause, we're talking about a person. And this mm -hmm. who he was to so many different people. So I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, so let's, I wanna dig in a, a little bit deeper. Um, something else that really struck out to me was they literally, like you said, used the word murder. 
Um, and again, they're using the word black. They're not erasing him as a black person, me as a black person, black as a race. They're not putting in people of color. They're specifically talking about black. They specifically call out murder. They literally, um, while they included the names of several other black people in their posts, which we often see, it, it didn't take away from the overall message that they were sending. Um, so I really like that about it as well. Um, and they talk about toxic seeds planted. And mm -hmm. it, it literally went back. And if you haven't um, looked at the 1619, um, what I, want, I don't want to call it a story, but history that um, they put together last year, and it literally talks about the systemic racism. It talks about race. It talks about the history of how black people not only were slaves in this country, but how it has manifested even after we were freed. So it really is important that they, they literally went back to 1619 to say this is when this all started and it still continues to this day. So that to me was very important because they started out with, with um, dismantling white supremacy and they're going back to that very moment as to when it really started here in this country at least. So I thought that was very, very um, instrumental in understanding the history of when it all started or, or started brewing, I should say deeper here in the US. Mm -hmm. And so, this is this is where I'm re referencing specifically Jamestown in in 1619. Yep. All right. So um, let's move on. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, the only thing I was going to say is that before we get into the four pillars, the paragraph right above that says, four years ago, we publicly stated our support for Black Lives Matter." So the movement. I think it's important to recognize two things. Number one, even if you've already said something, say it again, say it every time something happens. Just because you said we stand for X thing one time, that doesn't show us that you truly stand for it. Um, so for example, I care about whatever topic. Well, if I care about it, I'm gonna constantly and consistently be talking about it because I'm reinforcing it to others, I'm reinforcing it to my culture, I'm reinforcing it to myself. I'm reminding myself, like, this is what we stand for. This is what we're doing. So even though if you did it once, do it, keep doing it. And then the next thing is, today we want to be even more clear. So each time these things happen, yes, it feels like, wow, here, go, here we go again. But there also is something to be said about, like, we need to clarify and with urgency what this highlights. And I think you just can't be too clear. You can definitely be more specific. Don't just hearts and prayer or prayers and thoughts and prayers, or we're going to work to be more inclusive. That's just very vague. We all know when we set goals, we need to be specific. So yes, our intention is for everyone to feel included. I'm a big proponent of setting an intention. I'm also big on setting the goal so that we reach that intention. Um, so that's all I wanted to say was like, even though you've done it once, keep doing it. And, and in that same sentence, because you started with the beginning, I'm going to take it home. They said, take concrete steps, meaning you have to be purposeful in the actions you're going to take. 
And then they said to dismantle white supremacy. Again, they're talking about specific action to a specific policy or institutionalized racism here. So systemic racism, that is what they're talking about. So they have been very specific as to what action they're taking and to where they're going to place that action. And so organizations need to make sure they're doing the same thing. Your, I, I cannot tell you how many black women and Latina women have reached out to me about the statements their employers have say, said, provided, sent out, or the lack thereof. Number one, they completely did not say black. They did not say murder. They did not say systemic racism. They did not say white supremacy. They did not say any actions they were going to take. Matter of fact, one employer said, hey, if you go buy this t-shirt, we'll, we'll match every dollar for dollar. It was like, you're a for-profit organization, a billion dollar organization. You just need to ante up the money, point blank, period. Don't worry about what your employers are providing, right? So I think it's really important employers understand what they need to be doing and how they need to be showing up. And Ben and Jerry's is a great um, way to show your employees where you stand and how you're going to support them. All right, so let's go into pillar number one. First, we want to call upon President Trump, elected officials, and political parties to commit our nation to a formal process of healing and reconciliation. So if you haven't read this, I'll, I'll continue. Instead of calling for the use of aggressive tactics on pro protesters, the president must take the first step of disavowing white supremacists and nationalist groups that overtly support him by not using his Twitter feed to promote and normalize their ideas and agenda. The world is watching America's response. What are your thoughts on the first pillar of of what um, ben, ben and Jerry's? So my first yeah. thought, I just can't help myself because I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. I think I don't even want to, yes, we can talk about the literal words, but I just immediately thought, okay, replace the president with CEO, executive director, et cetera. So like, I think in leadership, how can we take this action within our own organization as the executive director? How can I do a process of healing and, and reconciliation? Because no organization is perfect. I'm sure there's some cracks that have been highlighted with COVID and now even more so with the revolution that's going on right now. And so what and how can we heal that and reconcile that? And of course, disavowing that and looking at, okay, so they're calling him out on his Twitter. Why don't we call ourselves in on our socials? How much and how frequently do we promote anti-racism? So that's where I took it. I just put the mirror up. I said, cool, they're calling him out, whatever. I agree with it, but also what can I do? How can I put this mirror up to myself as a leader and to yeah. others and say, hey, how can we do better? Yes, and, and I often call it as, like you said, the CEO, your other C-suite executives, your board of directors. I didn't even say the DE&I team because you may only have one person. They this, this has to be led from the top of the organization and it has to be very clear. And like you said, it should be 
um, shared across all the social and not just once. It has to be consistently done. And your organization and whatever that plan is needs to plan out how does that show up. And it doesn't just show up in February for Black History Month. It doesn't show up just for Black Music Month, which is June, right? We're in the midst of Black Music Month. It has to show up consistently every single day. Um, and, and you have to, as an organization, as that management team, leading that organization, what does that look like for your brand, for your Black employees? So you need to be very specific about it. And I'm just going to tell you, you're not going to get it right all the time, but you cannot remain silent in this. That's right. right. I'll, I'll repeat that. We will be making mistakes. And what's the most important is how you respond after you've made that mistake. So just start with the assumption of we will, we will be making mistakes and we are working hard to correct them and reconcile them as we grow and learn. We are learners right now. And, and so there will be that grace, but give the grace to the people giving you the feedback <laughs> and exactly. say thank you. Exactly. So we're going to move on to pillar number two. Second, we call upon Congress to pass H.R. 40 legislation that would create a commission to study the effects of slavery and discrimination from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. We cannot move forward together as a nation until we begin to grapple with the sins of our past. Slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation were systems of legalized and monetized white supremacy for which generations of black and brown people paid an immeasurable price. That cost must be acknowledged and the privilege that accrued to some at the expense of others must be reckon reckoned with and readdressed. So um, do you want me to open up HR 40 so people understand what that is? If you want to, I don't, I didn't dig that deep. <laughs> oh, I, I read it. I read it. Oh, so, go, Michelle, go. Because, so, um, you know, well, I'm about that life too. So <laughs> what what is truly important is they literally talk about reparations for African-Americans. Um, what was more important, a lot of people don't know about the, the Tulsa riots and we've renamed it because really is a massacre. It's the Tulsa massacre. Um, I've lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in North Tulsa, um, um, where a lot of black people live now, there's a, where there was in Tulsa a, a section, there is a section of town called um, Greenwood, if I'm not mistaken. And it was where a lot of black businesses were. You had doctors, nurses, hospitals, banking, and white people were upset that black people were doing well in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So they literally came through that neighborhood, murdered numerous people burned down that section of the neighborhood of Tulsa. Um, and literally you're talking when the national guard came in to assist, not to stop it, but to assist. Um, there's what one or two survivors left. This happened, um, what a hundred, I forget exactly, 99. but it's the early 1900. Yeah. 99 years ago. I just saw. Yeah. And it was, it still hasn't been addressed. It still is not very well known. And so when people think reparations, they think automatically back, back to slavery. 
But things like this continue to happen over and over again as black people amass wealth, as we built our own businesses because it was a segregated society. What was torn down? What was burned down? Who was murdered for doing well and actually building something? So often people say, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Well, they did. And they didn't even, and the slaves didn't even have boots when they left, they left the plantations. They were barefoot, right? But you're telling people to build something from nothing. They do it and they do it well. And it still gets torn down time and time again. So when they talked about reparations, it, it goes so much deeper than just slavery. It goes to after slavery and what we've done in this country just to have it torn and burned down again and again. So I think people need to have a broader or or, or more um, ex need to dig deeper and understanding what we as black people have done in this country for a hundred years with very little assistance um, or some assistance, I won't say little, but some assistance from white, white allies, but also how oftentimes it's torn down repeatedly um, time and time again. And we're seeing it now in gentrification in our own neighbor, neighborhoods. So it talks about the 400 years. Um, so I just wanna say, go and read that. I'm gonna go back um, to the, the four pillars and I'll, I'll let Casey take over because it's really important that you understand what they're talking about as far as reparations and how that is not a, just a slavery aspect, but it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Um, I actually just saw a headline. I didn't even click on it. What I forget the I forget the woman's name. Head uh, of Vogue. She's the editor for a long time. Anyway, she basically is grappling with the sins of her past right now. And I think about Vogue, and I think about um, where we all sit in our organizations, and how can we grapple with our organization's past? If you're a newer organization, fine. Think about it anyway. How you know, even if you have a small history. Um, you can think about that, or you can think about your industry. Um, you can think about and reflect on that stuff and grapple with it, meaning like acknowledging it, taking ownership of it and saying, yes, this happened and we held it up and perpetuated it in certain ways. Um, so you need to acknowledge the cost um, that it basically, the cost and privilege that, so this line, that cost that must be acknowledged and the privilege that accrued to some at the expense of others. I think that line is really powerful to me because that's just being honest and acknowledging. So it's very deep, it's very uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable to talk about and be as vulnerable as this is being. But if we really truly genuinely want to move forward, we have to grapple with the past because we already saw that we have tried to move forward as a country and it just keeps haunting us. So let's just let's just face it. Face the fear. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Yeah, do it scared um, because we haven't been. One one of the comments is for pillar. I love pillar two. It steps towards ending systemic racism. I think pillar one was okay, but conversations need to continue at every level, mm -hmm. um, and it needs to be done every single day. Absolutely agree. Um, one one other comment: Black Wall Street. That's what it is. Black Wall Street. Yeah. Um, but we need government to help push this forward. I would say as, as citizens, we need to be making sure government is pushing this forward. We elect these people. Um, I'm your constituent. I will fax your office, email your office, call your office. My mother doesn't fax, she don't email, but she will call and she has called. Um, so I've learned a lot from her 
in how to engage with um, politicians, not just at the state level, but also um, in Congress here and making sure they hear my voice as, as their constituents. So it is very, very important that we do that every single day. Mm -hmm. um, even, even in the off season. So um, one of the, one of our congressmen, he has a fish fry and literally there's like a fish fry. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the thing here. Don't, don't, don't ask. <laughs> and you put yellow mustard on your fish sandwich. So, but it's those things where you go out and you engage with other constituents and find out what their voices are too. So it's great to be within our own communities, whether it's social and in our neighborhoods, but going out to those, even those, those regular, right? The regular people type of, of political events and really hearing what matters to them and what they really need. And that truly plays another part in understanding where systemic racism is current day and how it's impacting people directly in your communities and neighborhoods. So um, I would encourage you to do that. Okay, um, I had another thought here and I can't read it because the room's too dark because it's in my notes. But <laughs> um, they talk about the cost, how some people accrued at the expense of others and how it was legalized and monetized. And often I hear what everybody that monetized from um, slavery is dead. That's not true. I want to number one, say that's a lie. Every single legal slave sale was taxed by the US federal government. Never ever forget that. Every single, and I'm sitting here in the state of South Carolina. One day after the pandemic, I will probably do a live stream for Market Street so you can understand what it looks like. They want to tell now Market Street where the slaves were sold, but they want to keep Confederate flags. You tell me why. So it is truly, truly important that you understand while plantation owners are dead, the U.S. federal government, which benefited from every single slave sale, is still very much alive and operating through white supremacy. Okay. All right. Um, yes. And somebody said Black Wall Street burning or Black um, Tulsa massacre is uh, a YouTube series. So if you don't know what that is, I encourage you to go to YouTube. To And it's, I think it's like eight videos. I looked at it about 10 years ago when I originally moved to Tulsa um, to educate myself about where I was. And that's a good thing about good the pro and the con about the internet. You can get access to more information these days. All right, I we're going to move on to pillar number three. Third, we support Floyd's family's call to create a national task force that would draft bipartisan legislation aimed at ending racial violence and increasing police accountability. We cannot continue to fund a criminal justice system that perpetrates mass incarceration while at the same time threatens the lives of a whole segment of the population. So, Crystal, I'll let you go um, go in on this point first. Okay. So the first thing that's that popped into my head is thinking about the workplace again in a tweet that I saw. And the tweet said, we need to build our organizations assuming that everyone's racist and build it so that we mitigate it and minimize it. And I think about my organization 
building as like our culture as soil, you know, do we make rich soil so that equity and inclusion is thriving or do we make rich soil that allows for oppression and marginalization and unequal treatment and harm. So that is what came out to me. So legislation aimed at ending racial violence. What is the type of policies and procedures and structures that we can put into our organizations that end violence? And I'm using the word violence more broadly thinking about the workplace, but it still hurts. It still hurts us in so many different ways, all of us, even white people, it, disproportionately black people and that whole spectrum. So also I'm thinking about this as, this is not just a black person problem. That's why all of us need to be fighting to make our workplaces and to make our society at large more racially just because yeah. we're all gonna benefit from it. Absolutely. So I have I have a take on this as well, just um, internal to organizations when it comes to creating a diverse um pool of not not pool a pool of candidates for job for positions but but also of employees what your employees backgrounds are what are their ethnic ethnicities gender race what does that look like and it starts number one with recruiting candidates and we literally had this have this discussion quite often um in in our black circles we literally here on LinkedIn, not we, but we, not me, but we being black people will take our pictures down when we're mm -hmm. looking for a job. And it's magical how all of a sudden I'm a perfect candidate when I don't have a black woman's picture up or a black man's picture up, right? But I share it with somebody, if the organization will not recruit you because you are black, how do you think they will treat you as a black employee? Mm -hmm. So if you have bias in how you recruit, I believe you're going to have issues internal to that organization and how you treat your employees. So I would like leave your picture up. If you're only getting two recruiters or hits for jobs a month, it's better than 22 because those other 20 may have and probably do have issues internally. The reason they won't even look at you because you have uh, you're a black person. And I literally have a friend. He does. this like, you know, Recruiters have stopped calling me. I'm going to take my picture of that. And it never fails. He literally, within two days, will have 10 different jobs, um, recruiters contacting him, wherein he would have had two in a month contacting him just by taking his, his picture down. So we're talking about recruiting. Now, looking at how you interview people, you're expecting certain behaviors. You're expecting certain, well, uh, or you're not expecting people who are Black to show up um, and come in and be as educated. And I can tell you, I surprised the hell out of people post LinkedIn because I was a black woman named Michelle Hayward and Michelle with one L with an engineering degree. So it surprised the hell out of them. So now what's, well, well, do you know what PSI is? And I'm like pounds per square inch. And, and they're quizzing me about my education wherein they're asking other candidates about their experience, right? So I have to prove that I earned my degree. They assume they know what the hell they're talking about because they're not black. Then once you're there, I have to have proof that I'm worthy of a promotion where my white counterparts only have to have potential. So now in all of that, you have to have certain measures in place, right? In order to make sure you have created an equitable process throughout your organization, 
from not only recruiting, not only interviewing, career advancement, because that impacts your retention. And too often organizations don't have that. Too often they're actually thinking, oh, well, all the black people are first generation graduates. I'm a third. I actually have a friend. She's an engineer. Her mother was an engineer before her. Will I say there's a lot of us? Probably not. But there are a lot of us who are not first generation college graduates. So the assumptions we encounter are truly, truly difficult to, to bring around. So I, I would say for organizations, you need to remove that throughout your entire um, talent management process because it is impairing you and it is hurting you. Okay. All right. Um, anything for pillar three, anything else? Uh, I just highlighted the part where it says um, mass incar incarceration while at the same time. Okay. So threatens the lives of a whole segment of the population. So uh, the word whole segment of the population really jumped out at me. So whenever you are doing an analysis of your organization, are there whole segments of your organization's population experiencing something disproportionately? That might be somewhere to go and say, and good or bad, you know, is it mostly 30 plus white women that make it to this position? Is it disproportionately brown and black people working at the lowest, most entry level jobs? When there is something happening with a whole segment of a population, dig deeper. Yes. Dig yeah. much deeper. Do the five whys. <laughs> Do multiple. Don't just give your first reaction of like, well, it's probably this. Oh, well, it's probably that. Okay, great. Now that that's done, now get into the real stuff. Dig even past that. Absolutely. Um, I was actually looking at a graphic that was that talks about Black professionals' career progression. Um, and in that graphic, I can't remember the gentleman's name here. I'm connected to on LinkedIn. Um, uh, he's over at Snap. But <laughs> it literally broke out how Black people's career progression, it, it broke out the experiences they were having. If they were having issues getting advanced, advanced um, promotions, if they were having um, issues getting mentors, so it literally broke out percentages on that. And it's over on my Instagram page. If you follow me on Instagram um, or the positive hire page, I think it's in the stories there. But you literally can check it out and look at the percentages. Oftentimes what we're seeing though is women of color is wrapped up. And if you go back to the most recent article, which I have posted on, is posted on Instagram too somewhere. Um, it talks about the percentage uh, it talked about the number of women CEOs. I think it's like 37, but 34 were white, three were Asian. Zero were black, zero were Latina. And the other question was, well, how many were Muslim? So it, it goes in to show you that it's not as though we aren't getting degrees, we aren't getting opportunities, and systemic racism, white supremacy is behind all of that. Um, so it, it is directly, like it says, impacting a whole segment of the population. And that happens in organizations every single day. So we're on to the fourth and final pillar. If you're still with us, put a one in the chat because we know this can be a little bit heavy. 
we understand that. Um, but also share your thoughts. What are you seeing in your organization as it relates to any of these pillars? Because Ben and Jerry's wrote it to government, like how gov government entities should do um, and even us as people should adhere. But look at it in the framework of an employee like Crystal and I are doing. And what does that look like for your organization or what should it look like for your organization or what do you want it to look like for your organization? And these are the things you can share with your ERG. You should be able to share it with your C-suite so that they can make changes. But I do understand as a black woman, the dangers you have in speaking up in the workplace. It may not show up today. It may be a year, it may be five years, but retaliation against us is very real. And when we take risks at work, it is, we have, it, it may not work out to us at a higher percentage rate than our counterparts. Okay. Um, I think we have, okay. We got, we got a one. So I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> And and finally, we call on the Department of Justice to reinvigorate its civil rights division as a staunch defender of the rights of black and brown people. The DOJ must be must also reinstate policies rolled back under the Trump administration, such as consent decrees to curb police abuses. Um, yeah, it's a lot of things that's been rolled back in the current administration, um, that are directly, that were di directly in place to fight white supremacy and removing those or not seeing value in what they did is a detriment to black people in this country. So whatever policies your organization has stopped doing. So I, I've, they were talking about um, Google and how Google knows its numbers are low, but the latest report that came out in May where they were rolling back, they were stopping some of their diversity initiatives. What initiatives have your organization stopped implementing? I know there's a large fin um, financial company. Um, this is what their VP said like a year ago to their employees, a little more than a year ago. And he's like, um, we're going to create a more diverse workplace here. We're looking at working with HBCUs, but we will not lower our standards. And the black people, a black person I talked to that's in the room when that was said, was like, well, damn, that's interesting coming from somebody who's a VP who has, who lacks the experience and the, the, the education to be in the role they're in. So it's like, it was a double standard. They're going to his, historically black college and universities to help diversify their employee base. They weren't going to lower their standards, but yet it's okay as long as you are not black. And it just, that that employee ended up leaving the organization because what they were saying on one side of their mouth did not align to the other side of their mouth. <laughs> so organizations need to make sure their management, their upper management is aligned to the policies, procedures, and the mission of the organization. And if they are not, they should not be in upper management in your organization. Um, Crystal, I'll let, I'll let you jump in here. <laughs> uh, what, I, what stood out to me, I agree with that, um, is the civil rights division. And I'm thinking a lot of folks have been reaching out to me recently saying they want to have 
a DEI team in their organization. And I think about ERGs and I think about like pockets of groups of people that are oftentimes leaned on um, to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Um, but at the same, which is great, at the same time, I think sometimes they're leaned on a little too much. And that's also something else that came out. Um, so I would say there needs to be a balance and like listening to folks and, and what and how they want the process to work for them. So there isn't like a one way to do it that works for every organization. There is a specific way to do it that works for your organization and your people and your culture. So I would allow people to be a part of creating that with you and not just decide for them what is going to work for them or not work for them as the CEO or as the ERG or whatever. It's just too much placed in one place. Yep. Um, so I do like that there's these groups that can collect information and, and provide it and speak the truth to the power up top. Because oftentimes, like Michelle said, we will experience a different type of reaction depending on our identity when we speak up about some racism or other ism happening in the organization. So to me, I would just highlight that as well. And then I was gonna just say the last paragraph, a couple of things that stood out to me. Okay, um, let me read this one comment and then oh, okay. we can go into the last paragraph. My organization at Boeing came out on confronting racism. We are having meaningful conversation. As I mentioned before, I just want and need for the dialogue to continue. Systemic racism in my mind cannot be fixed by black Americans alone. We need our white American allies to fix it and help with help educate and share like minds with other white Americans. Absolutely agree. It does. It literally is going. We always say a village is going to take all of America to make this these changes happen. Um, I'm going to read the very last sentence, um, very last paragraph, rather, unless and until white America is willing to collectively acknowledge its privilege, take responsibility for its past and the impact it has on the present and commit to creating a future steeped in justice. The list of names that George Floyd has been added to will never end. We have to use this moment to accelerate our nation's long journey towards justice and a more perfect union. Okay, Crystal, I'll let you get started because you're like, I'm ready. I got this. <laughs> These are just the last thoughts that I was thinking. It's like, we need to collectively acknowledge, and I think the last person said it exactly right. We need everyone working on this, really shifting the mindset from this is a black problem to this is an all of us problem. Um, we need to take responsibility for the past, absolutely, and impact and the impact it has on the present. And I'm going to highlight because I am starting um, a book club and reading how to be an anti-racist. And to be honest, I've been flare my anger has been flaring up in myself because I have thought, okay, what can I do to benefit Black people? But at the same time, what can I do to benefit myself? to get more and root out more of the racism in me, in, in the society, in the workplace, so that generations ahead of us don't have to work so hard to root out the racism that has been implanted in us since the day we were born or since the day we were raised and started to be conditioned in the white supremacy society that we live in. So yes, it's about disproportionately 
um, murdered black men and women and trans folks at, at the hands of police. And it is building the future world that we deserve by rooting it out of us and rooting it out of the systems that baked it into us so that other generations don't have to do the hard work of unlearning. Unlearning is super hard and I'm annoyed that I have to spend so much of my time unlearning it. And I'm annoyed because I just know that if we Absolutely. were in a society that didn't have this, we wouldn't have to do all this work to get rid of it. So I, I think it's yes and. Yes, we need to support and recognize with a capital B, the black community that is in our society that is disproportionately harmed as well as what is inside of us and how that is harming us. Absolutely agree. I, I wanna go, cause I know we're way over time. Um, we have to use this moment to accelerate. So that doesn't mean, you know what? The next time this happened, I'm gonna be there. Like, no, the time is now. You are here. Let's do this work. Um, and so any, any, they literally say our nation's long journey, accelerate a long journey. They know it's going to take a long time. So it didn't take us a short time to get here and it won't take us a short time to get to an anti-racist society here in the U.S. But they're like, this can accelerate that journey. So while it's a marathon, you can do sprints. I'm just saying, let's sprint this out. And, and let's get to the end of this marathon sooner than later. All right. Okay, Crystal, any last thoughts you want to share? No, I put out all my thoughts at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody who, who hung out with us this entire time of you're watching the replay, we really, really do want to say thank you for joining us. Be sure to include your thoughts, your interpretations, like how can you use this action plan to help implement things with inside your organization, to share to your C-suite. These are the things we should be doing within our organization to make change, to create an anti-racist organization because it is truly, truly there. Uh, thanks, Kathleen. So everybody, we will be back next week again, talking about anti-racism talking about the things that should be going on that are happening, right? They may not be as widespread and as deep as what Ben and Jerry has put out and are consistently working towards. But guess what? You can accelerate it now. You can accelerate it today. And it literally will take a collective to break down anti-racism here in the U.S. All right, everybody. We will see you next week, Thursday. Bye. 1 p.m. East Coast time. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.